Good morning, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, it's another Throwback Thursday as we remember our friend, colleague, and community icon, Dick Doherty, on what would have been his 100th birthday. Also this morning, while college enrollment has been steadily declining over the past three years, opportunities in the skilled trades are booming. Could this be the great equalizer for disadvantaged young adults who can no longer afford traditional higher education? And happening around town, Hillcrest Golf Club will host an outing later this month to benefit the Josh Minton Foundation, established in memory of a Northwest Ohio native and West Point graduate who sadly lost his battle to cancer at the age of 32. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, July 21st, 2022. If you need a reason to celebrate, I mean, other than the fact that it's Dick Doherty's 100th birthday, and that's reason to celebrate, you know, we need a really big cake. That's what we need. Uh, it is also, it is also... Take a monkey to lunch day. It is invite an alien to live with you day. Mm Mm-hmm. It is legal drinking age day. (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, uh, if you are taking a monkey to lunch and inviting an alien to live with you, maybe you've uh, had a little too much to drink already. You know what I mean? That's... Also, National Junk Food Day, and it is Be Someone Day today. Be Someone today. This was kind of interesting um, off the uh, Newswire this morning. You know how divided we are in this country politically uh, these days. It feels like the political divisions in this country are worse than they have been in a very long time. And... If you if you talk with people about this, generally, you'll get the response that, you know, if we could just sit down and really talk to each other and listen to what the other person has to say and have these heart to heart conversations about whatever issues are coming between us, then it could help heal that divide. We would find that we are closer than we think we are, you know, the, 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 the political operatives are driving that wedge between Americans intentionally for their own political purposes, and that Americans generally are closer than you might think, and so on, so on and so forth, blah, 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 you, right? That's, that, that's what you hear uh, all the time. I think that's the general consensus. However, a new study finds... That is not the case. Researchers at the University of California at Berkeley say that uh, brief conversations between Democrats and Republicans about sensitive political topics did not narrow divisions. And while there was slightly more success when talking about neutral topics, the effect did not last. Co-author of the study, David Brockman, political science at UC Berkeley, said simply... Liking the other side's voters more doesn't appear to affect your political behavior. But while the conversations by people across the political divide in the study did not change opinions, uh, he said none of the conversations turned ugly, as they often do, say, for example, on social media. And participants were more likely to say 
that cross uh, cross party conversations are important. So I, I saw that and I thought that's interesting, but I think it may miss the point. Um, it, it's not when we talk about bridging the divide is not cha- about changing uh, each other's opinions, per se. It's about realizing that even though we have our differences, we're all, you know, good, decent human beings instead of the uh, insults that we throw back and forth on social media. Kind of interesting. I just thought of uh, the idea that if we could just sit down and have a heart to heart, then it could help heal the political divide. Maybe that's not true. Anyway, something to chew on here this morning. A couple of other uh, interesting stories that I found on the uh, Newswire this morning. Among the first things you need to know this morning are the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories uh, of the day. The stories are worth talking about around the water cooler at work today. Speaking of uh, work, is your workplace uh, toxic? You have a toxic workplace. Here are some signs to watch out for. And this is from, where is this? Where was this? uh, I did not write down the source. I apologize. Uh, Not sure exactly. Remember, I think it was in, uh, was it Axios, Politico, one of those? I don't know. Anyway, some signs to look out for to know that if, uh, to to know whether or not you have a toxic workplace. A toxic workplace may make you feel trapped like there is no way to move forward. A workplace that lacks upward mobility is toxic for your career path. Micromanaging, being asked to work, being asked to work more without extra pay is a big red flag of a toxic workplace. And they say, beware of unspoken expectations like, uh, being available to work or answer messages at the drop of a hat, even during your time off. Those are all signs of a toxic workplace. Okay. You know, some of those uh, things can probably describe any workplace if you really think about it. I mean, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I thought this was a, a, an interesting story because I have seen... Uh, some of these uh, types of uh, stories pop up in the uh, in the news throughout the course of the summer. Really, the past couple of years, they've had incidents at uh, Cedar Point, at Kings Island, and and so on. Uh, young people, teenagers uh, especially, behaving badly uh, in the parks, causing trouble, causing fights, uh, that kind of thing, and uh, generally disrupting the uh, family atmosphere that uh, amusement parks try to. Uh, project now the southern california theme park knott's berry farm which is owned by cedar fair cedar points parent company knott's berry farm is implementing a chaperone policy after repeated fights among younger visitors including multiple fights that broke out just this past weekend which led the park to decide to close three hours early on saturday night this past saturday uh, the uh, park had to close early because it was such a, a melee and get everything under control uh, under the new policy, which will begin, uh, which will be in effect on Fridays and Saturdays. All guests age 17 or younger will need to be accompanied by a chaperone who is at least 21 years of age to enter the park. 
Uh, one chaperone may accompany no more than three guests per day. The Code of Conduct says chaperones must accompany their party during entry, remain with their party at all times during their visit, and be available by phone throughout their stay. <laughs> that's interesting. I think that's a, uh, a clever idea. I can see that catching on. Uh, unaccompanied teenagers, you're going to uh, cause trouble. We're going to make sure that you are chaperoned at the park. Interesting. Uh, speaking of kids, a popular hairstyle of old is making a comeback. Hundreds of kids and teenagers are growing it out for the USA Mullet Championships this year. <laughs> the uh, nationwide online competition will crown a a kid and a teen. They have two different age levels. Uh, will crown a kid and a teen for the best business in the front, party in the back look. And this is the third annual. I had no idea that this was a thing once again. Voting is done through the... I had, uh, back in the day, back in the day, in the 80s, I had a mullet. <laughs> I think we all did. I'm not proud of it, but apparently, these days, it's coming back, and uh, <laughs> voting is done uh, through likes and reactions on the uh, Mullet Championship's Facebook page. The winner in the teen division gets $1,000 and the winner in the kids division takes home uh, $2,500. The kids division actually pays better than the teens. That was kind of interesting. $1,000 for the teen. Kids winner takes home $2,500. <laughs> the USA Mullet Championships. I don't know. I'm going to have to check that out on uh, Facebook. The Mullet Championships. Uh, if the mullet truly is coming back, then... That is one sure sign that society is doomed. Maybe the uh, maybe the pandemic did impact us, after all, in ways that we couldn't expect. I don't know. Anyway, it was just. By the way, speaking of uh, speaking of the pandemic, this I suppose is a good uh, is a good news. Uh, it is back to business in one of the nation's busiest cities. The headline says here, New York City says the amount of public urination incidents on their subway cars is reaching pre-pandemic levels. <laughs> the, the number of public urination complaints on New York City subways is reaching pre-pandemic levels. <laughs> now we know things are back to normal. Uh, <laughs> the city reports the MTA is taking out more cars for cleaning, uh, a rate that is beginning to rival the all-time high set in 2019. So far, roughly 1,700 cars were taken out of service for cleaning this year. In all of 2019, the total number of cars with soiled interiors was just over 3,400. So they are on pace. Uh, when asked about the sullied state of things, uh, Matt Ahern, a uh, transportation workers official that represents subway cleaners. First of all, how would you like to have that job? <laughs> what do you do for a living? I'm a subway cleaner. <laughs> People relieve themselves on the subway. It's my job to come in and clean it up. Uh, 
Matt says it's uh, it's bad. It's getting really bad. Ridership is only 60% of what it used to be. So what is causing more people to relieve themselves in the cars? Well, it could be that the MTA has kept its public bathrooms closed since the beginning of the uh, COVID-19 outbreak. They say the stalls be kept closed for public safety. That is further complicated by the rising number of the city's homeless population who use the subway cars for shelter and travel. Uh, Mr. Ahern says, uh, listen, when you have people living in the car and using it as their kitchen and the bathrooms are closed, they're going to use it as their toilet as well. Uh, To combat the situation, the MTA is hiring additional cleaners to take care of the filthy cars. Ooh, job opportunity. (laughs) They currently have 913 cleaners and they are looking for more. Um the uh, the whole thing is uh, sparking calls for the MTA to reopen all of its bathrooms. So that may be a good solution, but uh, I don't know. I just thought that was that was a, a great headline. You know things are getting back to the normal uh, when the New York City uh, public urination complaints are back to pre-pandemic levels. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Plenty of sunshine expected again today with a high of 90. Just a few clouds tonight, a low of 69. The Ohio State Highway Patrol is reminding motorcyclists to protect themselves by putting on the proper protective gear before hitting the road. Sergeant Ryan Perpura. Sometimes out there on the road, you do see a motorcyclist, you know, wearing flip-flops, a t-shirt, a pair of shorts. You know, we don't want that to end in tragedy where they fall off and they look back and they wish they would have had their protective gear on, their helmet on, which could have reduced their injuries or potentially saved their life. And the Highway Patrol is asking everybody on the roadways to always pay attention for motorcycles. A jury in Hardin County has found Charles Castle guilty of kidnapping and other felonies after he took a young girl from her home, assaulted her, and left her for dead. After that first guilty verdict, we would hear 15 more. Charles Castle was found guilty on all 16 counts against him, including kidnapping, rape, and attempted murder. Now, when those verdicts were read, Castle stood in handcuffs in a protective vest. You may remember, he was accused of taking a young girl from her home to his camper and then leaving her in the basement of an abandoned home. At some point, he strangled her, leaving her with brain damage and lingering injuries. ONN's Brittany Bailey reporting. The Ohio Democratic Party is calling on a Republican Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost to resign. The call for resignation stems from Yost going to court and successfully lifting the stay placed on Ohio's heartbeat law. Now abortions beyond six weeks are illegal in Ohio. Ohio Democratic Party Chair Liz Walters says, Dave Yost is not fit for office. He is only punishing women and trampling on their freedoms, and he is directly attacking the victims he is charged with protecting. Walters also cited Yost's doubting of a story of the rape of a 10-year-old Ohio girl who became pregnant and had to go to Indiana for an abortion. Dave James, I went in news. A bridge replacement project that had a road just south of Finley closed since early June has been completed. The Hancock County Engineer's Office says County Road 172 between U.S. 68 and the railroad tracks is back open to traffic. You can get more on this and other local road and bridge projects on the website. I'm Matt Demchek with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. (laughs) 
Yeah, for decades, whenever you heard this music, you knew that Dick Doherty was on the radio. In our throwback Thursday this morning, we are remembering our friend, our colleague, and community icon on what would have been his 100th birthday today. Hard to believe he's been gone as long as he has, 2008, when Dick passed. Dick loved Finley, and that love was mutual. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone who knew more about the history of our town, especially some of the quirky stories from Finley's past. And boy, nobody could tell a story like Dick could. For many years, Dick Doherty hosted a feature here on WFIN, featuring some of those quirky stories from Finley's forgotten past. In this segment of A Stroll Down by the Old Mill Stream... Dick recalls the history and the exploits of the Linco Flying Aces. Today I'm going to talk about Lieutenant Joe Mackey and the Linco Flying Aces. As I started planning this program, I realized that there are many people who might not be familiar with the name Linco, L-I-N-C-O. It was the trade name the Ohio Oil Company used for their gasoline. The name Marathon was used for their motor oil, a name that they would later use on all of their products as well as their corporate name, as it is today, the Marathon Oil Company. Now, back to Joe Mackey and the Linco Flying Aces. Joe was famous nationally and internationally for his stunt flying of an airplane. He and his crew worked for the advertising department of the Ohio Oil Company. Later we'll tell you how it all got started. The public address announcer for the air shows put on by the Linco Flying Aces was a man by the name of Bill Sweet. Before coming to Finley, he had announced hundreds of air races and air shows all over the United States. He wrote a book, They Call Me Mr. Air Show. There's a copy at the Finley Public Library, and if you like airplanes, you should check it out. Today, I'll quote from Mr. Sweet's book about how he and Joe Mackey got acquainted with the Ohio Oil Company. Bill, along with uh, Arthur uh, Fatso DeBolt and Joe Mackey, were in Lancaster, Ohio, a town that had no airport. The three of them were uh, going to put on an air show out of a cow pasture. Now, that sounds odd today, but back in the 1930s, this was not uncommon. Bill Sweet was in uh, downtown Lancaster drumming up attendance for the show by giving his spiel through a cheerleader's megaphone, slowly driving his Ford Roadster up and down Main Street. And now I quote from Bill's book, quote, It was Saturday afternoon and that's when the farmers were in town from miles around for their once a week shopping. So Lancaster was jumping and I was mentally counting my chickens already. As I was cruising along slowly, haranguing the good burgers of Lancaster, a fellow came running up to the car shouting for me to wait a minute. It turned out to be Mr. Herb Williams, who was then advertising manager of the Ohio Oil Company. He wanted to know how could he get in on this big air show. It's easy, Mr. Williams, just do two things. First, run a full-page ad in the Lancaster Eagle Gazette. Second, give us free gasoline for our show. Partway through that show, a fairly high wind came up, and during Mackey's uh, acrobatic routine, it uh, produced, or aerobatic routine, actually, a big wind came up, and it produced the unusual happening of Joe flying backwards for a short time. He had just rolled, inverted, the engine stopped, and Joe actually drifted upside down 
and backwards. My brother, Robert Sweet, was doing a cartoon feature at the time, which was syndicated in several papers, so I got him to feature the incident. It was picked up by the wire services, went coast to coast, then was picked up by Bob Ripley for his famous Believe It or Not cartoon, which was at that time one of the best-read newspaper features of the day. So overnight, Joe Mackey was famous, and demands for performances by our air show came from all over. Later, Bill, Joe, and five other pilots did join the Iowa Company, and they became the Linco Flying Aces. One of their most popular promotions was skywriting, spelling Linco with smoke in huge letter, thousands of feet above the ground. Now, getting that smoke to work took a lot of trial and error, but they did finally perfect it. They even had smoke coming out of the three engines of the big tri-motor Stinson that was flown by uh, Myron Hightower. Oh, what days those were. Joe Mackey coming down towards the earth in a power dive. The strut wires were screaming, that big engine roaring, smoke billowing behind faster and faster, and Bill Sweet on the microphone screaming in hysterically, Joe, no, no, pull it out, Joe, please. Well, the thrills are gone, long gone, and for now, so am I. Nobody can tell a story like Dick. He's a great storyteller. Even really matter whether or not the stories were maybe even a bit embellished. They were just such uh, such great stories down by the old mill stream with Dick Doherty and our Throwback Thursday this morning. Well, as we mentioned yesterday, it was already becoming more and more difficult to afford a college education, and then along comes the kind of inflation we haven't seen in 40 years, making it even more difficult when everything else eats up such a big chunk of the budget. But while college enrollment is down by somewhere around a million students over the past couple, three years, skilled trades are booming. Joining us is Letitia Hankey, founder of the Lime Foundation and operator of the Next Gen Trades Academy. Letitia, kind of interesting about that statistic regarding college enrollment being down 7% since 2019. Most of that is actually in two-year schools, and for years, that's been touted as the more affordable option. So it would appear that it is not just about the cost. That's right. It's not just about the cost. And the thing is, is that in the trades, we've noticed that more and more young people have been looking for an opportunity. You know, college is great. You know, we all know, we've all been taught and learned, you know, you finish high school, you go to college. Right. But what we've noticed over these, you know, all these years is that that's not always um, an option for everyone and that there are other opportunities available as well. So if it's not and just the trades. Yeah, so if it's not just the cost, what are some of the uh, other uh, factors that are making the skilled trades? Because they, like we said, are booming, even while college enrollment declines, skilled trades are booming. Why is that? What uh, are the other uh, attractive points that play into that? Well, you can get into a trade without any training. So what we're learning is that all, a lot of our young people can actually walk right into a carpentry job, learn how to build, and now they're building homes. Or for me, I'm a roofing contractor. So a lot of my students that have just graduated from high school that come to work with me, they've never roofed before, but we train them. And so they're getting paid to learn how to walk up on the roof and actually install a roof. And that's not costing them anything, right? Yeah. They're not going into debt and getting school loans. And, you know, I just paid off my school loan last year and I'm yeah. 46 years old. Right. You know, I haven't been to college since 1997. 
so that's what we're that's what they're finally learning is that they can actually right out of high school go right into a trade without it you know, costing them a bunch of money and they can learn and get paid at the same time. Now, we mentioned you are the founder of the Lime Foundation and uh, the operator of the Next Gen Trades Academy. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this. Well, as a, as a contractor, I got together with a bunch of my contractors a few years ago and we just started talking about what are the what are the things that we suffer with, you know, the most that we are all related to? And it was all workforce. Every single answer was like, we can't find anyone, especially young people that want to go into the trades and learn a skill. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, I said, well, what if I was willing to train them? Would you guys mentor and hire them? And all of my contractors said yes. And back then in 2017, you know, when we first started the program, we only had about 11 contractors. Now we have 169 contractors wow. that are part of the program because they now see um, the benefits of actually training someone from scratch rather than, you know, having someone come in who's seasoned with, you know, bad habits and bad attitudes. They're seeing that training some young folks that kind of come in and eager and ready to learn has been very valuable for them. And that's why the program has been very successful. Now, I don't want to make this uh, about race necessarily, but the point has been made that rising college costs exacerbate the gap between the privileged families who can afford a higher education and disadvantaged communities, communities of color in particular. You see skilled trades as kind of the great equalizer here? Well, I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't necessarily say that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a black female, you know, in the trades and there's still such a small percentage or, of or holding, know, women. Or maybe the, or, or or maybe the better question is does it hold the potential to be a great equalizer in terms of providing opportunities in that respect? So yes, yes on that. Okay, if if we are now educating, especially our at-risk youth, and a lot of them are, you know, minority or low-income youth, mm -hmm. we're specializing in making sure that we let our that youth specifically know about this opportunity. So, is there an opportunity for it to be a great equalizer? Yes, in the future, I think the more that we talk about this, and the more that we focus on getting, you know, the young folks, especially in that demographic, involved. We can see, you know, more business owners that are women, you know, that are, you know, Latinx, that mm -hmm. are, you know, African-American right. in this industry. You mentioned one of the recurring themes for you and many of your uh, same, your contemporaries in the, in the skilled trades and, and business owners in the skilled trades, finding uh, finding the workforce and, and, and getting people into these jobs. Is that a case of... Uh, lack of awareness about the opportunities uh, that are out there? Absolutely. It's simply lack of awareness. They don't know that, you know, a lot of these students are taught, right, go, go straight to college. You right. graduate from high school, you go to college. So they don't know that they can graduate from high school and go straight into a lucrative career. Right. And that's now that's what they're learning. And this program that we do, we teach them that specifically. We're going into the high schools and giving them a second option. Yeah. Have some of our students taken our class and decided to still go to college? They have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, uh, most of our students, you know, 72% of them have actually moved on to getting a great career in the construction trades. And so, we've had 251 students go through the program. So uh, if... Uh the awareness uh, of the opportunities uh, is one of the challenges. What are some of the career opportunities available? 
Um, you can go into, uh, they, they're going into carpentry, um, electronics, like uh, um, electrical, HVAC. Um, they're working for like alarm companies where they're doing a lot of wiring, um, audio visual, um, automation, solar. I mean, it's count, we've got 24 trades right now that they go into. Um, and then we have other trades now like manufacturing and engineering and mm -hmm. architects that are now contacting us as well about the program, program. So there's so many different trades that they can actually go into. And we allow our students to kind of choose the trade that they want to pursue. And then we work on getting them um, a career in that industry. So uh, much more wide ranging slate of opportunities than maybe what people realize as well. Right. There's, you know, there's the, the standard trades that people know of plumbing, right? I mean, you right. think of, when yeah. you think of trades, you think of plumbers, right? Right. But there's so many more that branch off of that, that people don't know about. And that's what we're now teaching our young people is that, you know, you want to go into solar. Now you can do battery systems, you yeah. know, as well. Um, or the, the, the AV part of, of an automation. There's just so much more out there. And it's been really great to and, see these young folks really get excited about it. And all of those uh, skills are very much in demand. As you mentioned, uh, you can be compensated very handsomely for those who actually have those in-demand skills. Again, Letitia Hankey is founder of the Lime Foundation and operator of the Next Gen Trades Academy. Where do folks learn more uh, about your programs and about opportunities in these fields? The best place to go is our website, which is thelimefoundation.org. And you can actually read about the Next Gen Trades Academy. And there's a, a form. If you want the program in your area, you can let us know. And we'd love to talk to you about that opportunity. Leticia, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Take care. to tell you about uh, something really special happening around town later this month. Hillcrest Golf Club will be hosting an outing to benefit the Josh Minton Foundation, which was established in memory of a Northwest Ohio native and West Point grad who sadly lost his battle to cancer at the age of 32. Uh, Josh's dad, uh, Bob Minton, is uh, with us uh, this morning. And uh, Bob, tell us a little bit about your son, first of all. Yeah, so thanks for having us. Appreciate it this morning. Um, Josh was a 2006 Elmwood grad mm -hmm. who decided he wanted to go into the military. And at the last minute, he uh, went through the process to get into West Point. So when he so when he said, you know, Dad, I want to join the, the military, was it always going to be the, the uh, service academy? Was that the, the, the route that he was going to take or, you know? No, I don't. I think he was just we just were regular going to enlist. Yeah, we did yeah. Civil War reenacting. We're a lot of very patriotic okay. family. OK, so he's a lot of exposure to, mm -hmm. you know, history and military. So I think yeah. he was going to join regardless. Yeah. Um, but, but the opportunity then came to go to West Point, which obviously yeah. is very exclusive. So. Yeah, very much so. So he graduated West Point in 2010, mm. uh, played rugby while he was there, which had a huge impact on him. Yeah. Helped him get through the academy. <laughs> Yeah. Um, deployed to Afghanistan, uh, came back and went to the captain's career course in uh, Oklahoma and started having back pain, which they thought might have been kidney stones. And it turned out to be a rare form of cancer, neuroendocrine cancer. Mm. My goodness. And so I thought it was interesting. You talk about over the, the next, what, five to seven years, five years or so. Yeah. He really uh, grabbed life 
with both hands. Yeah. So when he was diagnosed, he was engaged to be married, you know, on top of the world. Yeah. You know, he was about to be promoted, um, having a great military career. He loved what he was doing. Yeah. Um, and for about his fiance left him. And for about six months, he was in a really dark place. Yeah. And then he found a, a group at Walter Reed, the Ullman um, Youth Cancer Society or Foundation. Mm-hmm. And that helped bring him out of his shell, kind of gave him some purpose. Mm-hmm. And once he became engaged with them, it was a night and day difference. Yeah. Um, his initial diagnosis, we found out after he passed away, they gave him two years to live. Hmm. He went through a round of chemo. And after the chemo, they said, uh, you have maybe a year because the chemo you know, didn't do anything. Right. And Josh was very aggressive in researching, looking up things. And he found a clinical trial drug somehow and basically said, you guys do what you want. I'll take this drug. I'll do extra testing. I want you to learn whatever you can learn from yeah, me. You, you, you say he kind of donated his body to science before he passed away. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Was, yeah. Uh, he did extra biopsies, extra testing all the way through the process. Talk about uh, a, a legacy of service. I mean, for a lot of folks, you think military, you think West Point, and that would be enough. And then, you know, this on top. I mean, that's just uh, tremendous. Yeah. And it, he benefited. The, the trial drug worked for several years, kind of kept things at least stable. Mm-hmm. Um. But cancer kind of figures out what you're doing to it, and it mutates, and right. eventually it stopped working. Mm-hmm. Um, so they tried another trial drug. He was actually the first person in the country to hmm. try this new drug. Wow. Um, didn't work real well. Um, and through it all, uh, again, there's that, there's that <clears throat> song, Live Like You're Dying. You know, yeah. hope that everybody gets the chance to live like you were dying. Absolutely. And that's really kind of the, the philosophy that he uh, embraced in the final years of his life. Yeah, through the Allman Foundation at Walter Reed, you know, he kind of became a welcoming committee for incoming veterans. Hmm. He wrote a pamphlet that they could kind of use to help guide him through the process. Wow. Um, he went on a, a Key to Keys ride several times from Baltimore to the Florida Keys. They didn't ride the whole way, but they would yeah. ride, stop at hospitals. Yeah. Um, while he was on chemo, he did a ruck to remember to help raise money for military causes. Um, it was a 60-mile march in 60 hours, hmm. carrying your stuff, sleeping along the way. Wow. And he was having chemo at the time. Packed a lot of living into 32 years. Yeah, he absolutely did. After his passing, now you have uh, founded the Josh Minton Foundation. Talk a little bit about the mission of the foundation to carry on his legacy. Yeah, so when when Josh left Walter Reed, um, I went to high school just east of Cincinnati. Josh bought a 50-acre property um, on a hill on a dead-end road (laughs) on a ridgetop, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, A five-bedroom cabin, wraparound porch, hot tub fire pit, hunting, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Bought it so his buddies could come and see him. He just loved to be outdoors, and he, he yeah. knew he was going to basically die there. Yeah. Um, so we've taken that property. We didn't know what to do. We wanted to honor Josh's legacy. He had done so much, we wanted to keep it going. Mm-hmm. So we turned that into the Josh Minton Foundation, Minton Lodge. And if you're, have you been impacted by cancer, military service, we provide it free of charge for a therapeutic stay. Um, you know, we'll help you with gas, groceries, whatever you need to get there. Hmm. And just, it's been decorated with a lot of Josh's memorabilia, you know, pictures as, as kind of as he wanted it to be. Yeah. The, the hope is, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that others find 
in that uh, property, the piece that Josh found. Yeah, peace, strength, yeah. you know, knowing what he went through, mm-hmm. you know, kind of being able to share in in his his story, his struggle, and maybe, you know, learn from that and, yeah. and, and just to be able to get away. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it is a reality that uh, his story is not necessarily unique. So you find yeah. that there is a need and and uh, it's kind of interesting there's been quite a response uh to this yeah there has been uh, we also have used the property as an airbnb to raise funds for the foundation mm-hmm. and people come to the airbnb and it's like wow you know we didn't really know yeah the story and we're able to tell them the story but mm-hmm. you know in america there's almost no families that have not been touched by cancer right or military service or both or both yeah. so there's a, a huge need in that community so, as we mentioned, you've got a golf outing at Hillcrest mm-hmm. later this month to benefit uh, the foundation. Give us the details on this. Yeah, so July 30th, typical golf scramble, uh, 8 o'clock shotgun start, prize drawings, raffles, skins, mulligans, all that sort of stuff, food. We need mulligans. That's the, oh. that's the thing. <laughs> let's, let's highlight that. There will be mulligans. Yeah, so if yeah. you've golfed with me, you need mulligans. <laughs> But we, you know, we started this thinking maybe we'd get 10 or 12 teams and maybe we'd make a little money, mm-hmm. maybe a little awareness. We're at 26 teams. Wow. Um, approaching $15,000 in sponsors. Wow. It's, it's just been unbelievable. Really, uh, really great to see uh, the response and the way uh, Josh's story and the foundation what you're trying to do with this have have really resonated with it because as you said just about everybody has been touched in some way and can relate to uh josh's story yeah absolutely and i do want to give a shout out to the elmwood community you know we thought maybe we'd get three or four teams from elmwood and it people are coming out of the woodwork i think we have 10 or 12 teams just from elmwood that's awesome so is there still time to uh, to sign up and be a part of this yeah we've got room for five or six more teams okay the registration deadline is sunday all right. Got to let Hillcrest know how many people are coming so they can plan for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd love to fill the course. And uh, you actually have a website uh, where folks can learn more about the golf outing, uh, first and foremost, but also the foundation itself. Uh, I know there are pictures of the uh, uh, of the lodge yep. and uh, all of that uh, there. Where do we find that online? Yeah, brothersonthree.org. And that's the number three. You don't have to spell it out. Okay. Uh, we actually do have that linked up at our webpage as well at goodmornings.net. So if you want to check that, it's such a, a wonderful uh, foundation. What a what a great legacy uh, to honor uh, just a, uh, such a special young man. And uh, again, if you want to learn more, go to uh, goodmornings.net. And uh, Bob Minton with us this morning. Thanks for uh, dropping by. And certainly uh, best of luck for a successful outing and uh, continued success with the foundation. Thank you. We appreciate your support. 20 years of good mornings on WFIN. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Police in Las Vegas. Uh, have uh, captured a woman after she allegedly smashed her way out of the back of a cop car. (laughs) What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Smashed her way out of the back of the cop car. A uh, report from the arrest or the original arrest back July 3rd says the woman broke out of her handcuffs, smashed a police car window, climbed out of the moving car, 
and ran uh, onto the interstate next to the Las Vegas Strip. All the while, she was armed with razor blades. While being chased, the woman allegedly threatened to kill an officer and his family. This is a lovely lady. She was uh, captured after the officer used a taser. She was originally uh, arrested on suspicion of lighting a bush on fire in a, a local desert area, which would be very dangerous. But <laughs> apparently that wasn't enough trouble for her. She decided to uh, really go all uh, all in, as they say in <laughs> Vegas parlance. <laughs> Smashed her way out of the back of a moving cop car. Somehow uh, broke out of her handcuffs and went running along the interstate next to the uh, Las Vegas Strip. Just another day in Las Vegas. <laughs> this is kind of weird. This from the uh, international file, the uh, broken news. Imagine, imagine walking out of your house one night. You look up into the sky and see it bathed in an, in an ominous pink glow. A pink glow in the sky at night. It happened in Australia, and uh, locals were perplexed and somewhat perturbed. News reports are that a massive pink light overtook the sky in Mildura without any explanation, which kicked the rumor mill into full drive. Uh, Residents offered uh, outrageous theories about what was causing it, everything from solar flares to a new... A uh, fast food restaurant opening in town. Turns out the explanation was is a medical marijuana facility causing the pink ruckus. The CEO of the Ken Group, Peter Kroc, uh, said uh, cannabis grows. He explained cannabis grows on an extended day length. Now, keep in mind, uh, down under, it's wintertime uh, where the days are shorter. As they don't get as much sunlight, uh, they don't get as much light as the uh, cannabis plants need, about 12 hours uh, of light. And um, they've had the lights on. And uh, he said, normally the blackout blinds close as the sun sets. But for whatever reason, they uh, had the uh, lights on, the blinds had not yet closed. Maybe there was an error, a glitch somewhere And so there was a period where it created a glow in the sky. They have they have come up with a term for it. They call it the Aurora Marijuanas. (laughs) The Aurora Marijuanas. I I know that was kind of a long way to go for that uh, for that gag, but that was the Aurora Marijuanas. Marijuana growing facility. Uh, let's see. Speaking of uh, international stories, you know, it's been very hot, not just here, but uh, in many parts of the world. Um, after an extended hot, dry period in India, faithful believers um, performed a religious ceremony in the hopes of pleasing the rain god there. They need rain. It's been very hot, been very dry. And so they performed a religious ceremony uh, that they hope will please the god of rain. They married two frogs in Gorakhpur, India. I probably have that way wrong. 
that pronunciation of that town, but uh, they've married. The name of the town is not the is not the kicker here. It's the fact they married two frogs. The frogs, it says, were married on July 19th and adorned with flowers. <laughs> and sure enough, meteorologists predicted rain in the area. Maybe it works. Maybe it's the uh, solution to climate change. We should marry the frogs. Get Kermit hitched already. <laughs> Married the two frogs. Did you hear about this uh, crazy story out of uh, Pasadena, California? An armored car carrying as much as $150 million in jewelry has come up missing, and the thieves are nowhere to be found. Uh, the Brinks truck was packed with expensive jewelry as it prepared to head to a show in Pasadena over the weekend. It had been loaded up after a show in San Francisco, and it was robbed in L.A. The International Gem and Jewelry Show travels around the nation, puts on different shows each weekend. Brinks estimates the loss at a uh, little less than $10 million, but the victims say it was closer to $150 million. Brinks says little less than 10, but then again, they're on the hook. So <laughs> they, they probably would try and minimize the theft. Many of the exhibitors, though, do not ensure the full value of their jewelry. And so some have lost their life savings unless they can find this jewelry. But that is crazy. $150 million in jewelry just comes up missing. And the thieves nowhere to be found. That is... That sounds like a strange story. It strikes me. I heard that story the other day, and I'm thinking, there's got to be more to that story. You know what I mean? There's got to be. And finally, in the broken news this morning, the odd and unusual side of the headlines, Kashante Short is suing the man who stood her up on a date. Richard Jordan is the guy's name, and he is being sued for $10,000. According to a report from TMZ, she is claiming intentional infliction of emotional distress because he did not show for their date, which just so happened to be on her late mother's birthday. So it was extra painful. Uh, this is a story out of Flint, Michigan. The hearing, uh, or the, the case went to a hearing before Judge Herman Marable Jr., and as expected, things did not go smoothly. Um, Ms. Short and the judge erupted into a heated disagreement. That never ends well. When you argue with the judge, generally does not end well for you. Uh, the uh, judge asked the woman if she understood what perjury meant. For the record, she had accused the man of committing perjury for supposedly lying on his dating profile. Now, that's not what perjury is, so... The judge took offense to that. It was just a little perturbed at this whole uh, suit, which clearly he felt was rather frivolous. Ms. Short alleged the uh, judge was insulting her intelligence. Um, as for Mr. Jordan, he was quiet during the entire hearing, other than saying he thought the entire thing was a waste of time. <laughs> a video of the virtual hearing, which shows... Um, which shows uh, Mr. Jordan making some <clears throat> expressions as Ms. Short loudly quarreled with the judge 
I'm not going to sit here and go back and forth with you, the judge finally says. After she tried putting words in his mouth, you need to be quiet while I'm talking. He then muted the woman's video and explained she filed her suit in the wrong court. Basically, uh, she went to the criminal district court when the matter was a civil it was a civil matter. So the judge punted it to his colleagues in circuit court. He also put the woman on the hook for paying all of the filing fees, noting that all the charges would be dismissed if she doesn't pay up by the deadline. So the whole thing did not end well for her. She tried to sue this guy for standing her up on a date, tried to sue him for $10,000 for standing her up on the date. And I'm looking at this story and I'm thinking to myself, who did he dodge a bullet? <laughs> you know, man, did he dodge a bullet. Even if he, even if for some reason he was uh, ordered to pay the $10,000, let's say that she got what she wanted and he had to pay the $10,000. I'd still say that he dodged a bullet. <laughs> I still say that he got the better end of that deal. Think about it. There you go. That is the uh, broken news this morning. This update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. This Thursday marks Dick Doherty's 100th birthday. WFIN remembers this cherished member of the community as well as our friend and colleague with a two-hour tribute Thursday night from 6 until 8. The tribute was broadcast on the day of Dick's funeral service, October 16, 2008. Join us in remembering Dick Doherty Thursday night from 6 to 8 on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. Time for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. We've uh, talked about this uh, in uh, various contexts over the uh, past couple of weeks uh, in terms of building generational wealth and uh, how much of a challenge that is uh, today. Number one, because of the rising cost of everything, uh, so difficult to to become a homeowner for first-time homeowners. That's one really common way of building generational wealth uh, from one generation to the next and, and so on and so forth, uh, leaving a little nest, uh, furthering education um, uh, for uh, greater upward mobility. Again, all ways of uh, building generational wealth. This is an interesting uh, survey of 2,000 U.S. adults, half of whom are homeowners, finds that 63%, 6 in 10 Americans, believe that they can build generational wealth. 63% are confident that they can accumulate property, investments, and other things with monetary value that they can pass out, pass down to their children of the next generation. Of those respondents, nearly three-quarters, 74%, believe they have already built some uh, level of generational wealth. Uh, however, home ownership is not the only way to do so. Again, that is one of the key uh, components of building generational wealth. And we've talked about that in the past couple of weeks uh, on the uh, program, how big of a challenge that is uh, in today's uh, real estate uh, environment. But that is not the only way to build generational wealth. More people who, uh, more people who live with their parents or family and don't pay rent, 83%, 
and renters, 75%, feel they have already built some generational wealth in comparison to homeowners at 72%, which I thought was uh, kind of interesting. So again, uh, it would be investments and other uh, things with monetary value that they can pass on uh, to their uh, uh, to their kids. Uh, 72% of homeowners feel that they've already built some generational wealth, but actually more renters and those who live with family and don't pay rent. And just kind of interesting uh, data points here from that uh, from that survey. What do you say we take another stroll down by the old mill stream in our throwback Thursday this morning in honor of Dick Doherty? We are remembering our friend and colleague on what would have been his 100th birthday today. Dick was a community icon, of course. He loved this town, and he loved sharing the stories of Findlay's history. And Dick was a great storyteller. For years, he hosted a feature on WFIN where he shared stories of Findlay's often forgotten past. In this segment of A Stroll Down by the Old Mill Stream, Dick shares the story of our city's long tire manufacturing history. Over the years, Findlay has had reasons to be excited. Automobile factories coming to town, famous people coming to town, even the first circus coming to town, all caused excitement. Back in 1914, everyone was excited about the new automobile tire company that was being constructed out on Lima Avenue. Cooper Tire? No, no. They'd have to wait six more years for that. The company in 1914 that was causing all this conversation was the Toledo Ford Tire Company. Concrete foundations were being poured for the vulcanization machines, some of which weighed many tons. The railroad siding was a busy area as carloads of heavy vulcanizing machines were unloaded, along with rubber mills, molds and cores, all shipped from Akron. Not only was the old factory building to be used, but a large new addition was built on Lime Avenue. Finally, in June of 1915, the Toledo Ford Tire Company was in operation, with the first new tires now being manufactured. Around the factory was painted a big ribbon sign, not very high, but plenty long. It had to be long because it said, Toledo Ford Tire Company, manufacturer of Ford sizes a specialty. About 1,000 local automobile owners bought stock in the company. They were making about 50 tires for the Ford Motor Company each day. They also made horseshoe pads. Really more comfort for Dobbin, huh? No, that wasn't the reason. It was less noise. It was also safer around gas wells. Think about it. Later that year, they were turning out 350 tires each week, working 24 hours a day. Later that year, 1915, the Ford Motor Company of Detroit entered objections to the use of the name Ford with the Findlay Tire Company. So, within the week, the management of the Findlay Company decided to comply with Ford's request and the name was changed to the Toledo Findlay Tire Company. The guys I pity were those sign painters that had just recently painted that big sign all around the building. They had to do it all over again. Well, it became a moot operation because in just two more years, the company had some hard times and was purchased by the giant tire and rubber company. But let's go back to 1914 again. About the same time the Toledo Ford Tire Company was getting moved into their factory out on Lime Avenue, 
two brothers-in-law over in Akron purchased a company that was producing tire patches, tire cement, and tire repair kits. They were Mr. Schaefer and Hart. Two years later, they acquired the giant tire company, an Akron factory that was in the tire rebuilding business. In 1917, the giant tire company with Mr. C.E. Hart as president moved to Findlay, taking over the buildings that were vacated by the now defunct Toledo Findlay Tire Company. About this time, Mr. I.J. Cooper of Cincinnati became a major investor in the giant tire company. The Findlay plant employed 29 men. After a fire destroyed the main building of the giant plant, a new plant was built and the new tires were marketed under the name of Cooper. These were sold by Mr. Cooper through his chain of wholesale stores, which he had renamed the I.J. Cooper Rubber Company. In 1921, the Cooper Corporation was formed, and the two businesses, Cooper and Giant, operated in two separate plants right here in Findlay. Then in 1930, the Giant Tire Company and Cooper Incorporated uh, merged with the Falls Rubber Company of Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio to form the Master Tire and Rubber Company with Mr. I.J. Cooper as president. Tires were manufactured under various private brand names such as Cooper, of course, Falls, Giant, Hoover, Savage, Williams, Swinehart, Tigerfoot, Englert, and Linco. During World War II, the company converted to full war production on pontoons and landing boats, life belts, waterproof bags, and secret camouflage items such as decoy torpedo boats. Following the war, in 1946, the firm's name was changed to Cooper Tire and Rubber Company, and as they say, the rest is history. Yes, but not just Findlay history, but history all across the land, Mississippi, Indiana, Arkansas, Washington, even in some foreign countries, tires selling now in virtually every country in the world. If only they could have known then, in 1914, that really would have caused some excitement. Our thanks to John Marshall for digging through the archives and coming up with uh, some of those uh, old uh, down by the old millstream programs from Dick Doherty. Invite you to tune in tonight at six o'clock for a special two hour tribute uh, to Dick Doherty in honor of his 100th birthday. It was a tribute that we originally broadcast back in the day of Dick's funeral service in October of 2008. That is tonight at six o'clock. Here on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. Our throwback Thursday this morning. And that is our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Make America Beautiful Again. We'll speak to the author of a satire inspired by the fact that truth really is stranger than fiction these days from first-time author and Ohio native, Bo Bancroft. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.